serve a God who wins all his battles, who is undefeated and undefeatable, and we praise him this morning. So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees, with my hands lifted high, oh God, the battle belongs to you, and every fear I lay at your feet, I'll sing through the night. today and always. pray that you will bless this time in the word, that you will open our, our ears to listen. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So we've got the Easter egg hunt coming up on April 8th, and thank you all for all the eggs and candy and good stuff you've brought in so far. Uh, I think we're about halfway on our goal for the eggs, for the plastic eggs, and uh, we still need a lot more candy, so if you can as you see some deals for uh, the individually wrapped candies, as long as it doesn't have peanut butter or peanuts in them, I will take those, though I like those. Um, we've got a donation spot in the, in the lobby here. Also, we've got some printed cards, some 4x6 invitation cards for you to take a little stack home with you and invite friends and neighbors and anybody with kids who might uh, be interested in 1030, uh, April 8th, Saturday, April 8th. Also... We need some more volunteers, so if you'd like to sign up for either the event on the 8th, or we've got a packing day on the 1st, which is a week before April 1st, Saturday, 9 to 11.30 a.m., where we're going to pack all the eggs. So, uh, Also, we've got a Get to Know Us luncheon on March 26th. It's going to be right here after services. So if you're at all interested in finding out more about Creekside, um, if you're newer or even if you've been here a little while, uh, this would be a great opportunity to ask questions and get to know get to know us a little bit more. So uh, if you could RSVP to Alicia, our administrative assistant, that would be great. And we can, uh, lunch will be included in that as well. So uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Steve. He's got a little update on his recent trip and the message today. So, Thanks, Mike. And uh, thanks, praise team. And uh, I feel a little bit, a uh, little bit out of sorts because uh, Anand, and I, Anand and I both went on this trip, and yet I'm going to be the one kind of right up here sharing a little bit, but uh, uh, I would really encourage you to talk to Anand, or you can talk to me later if you want to know more, okay? So we're just going to give you, I'm just going to kind of give you the, the thumbnail sketch of what our, our trip entailed, but uh, um, first of all, I just want to say thanks uh, to each of you. Very much uh, because uh, your prayers and your support, and for allowing us to go, uh, me to go, Anand could go without you, uh, your blessing probably, but uh, for allowing me to go, and just for uh, blessing us with the opportunity of this experience. It was a, a wonderful experience for us to, to be there. So people will say, Well, how was your trip? And, you know, when people go on mission trips and they come back, I try to tell people, okay, you need to have your, your 30-second answer, and you need to have a little bit longer answer, and then you need to discern whether people really want the big answer or the 30-second answer, okay? 
because everybody who's been on a mission trip knows that you come back, you're just kind of overflowing. And so uh, some people just kind of want to hear the thumbnail. This is the somewhere in between those, okay? So it's, it's not the 30-second, but a little bit longer. This is Anand and I uh, standing in Carnul, uh on a fort in Carnul. Uh, this fort was built, and Anand couldn't correct me, but it was built by the, the Indian people uh, to defend themselves uh, against uh, the aggression. Uh, and there's a, a tunnel uh, that is an escape tunnel that goes for 30 miles uh, underneath uh, at, in this, in this uh at this fort. Carnot is a small town. It's only about two million people. So uh, that's where we went uh, first. That's our first place of ministry was in Carnot. And this is where Anand grew up. This is, well, uh, near there. His family lives there now. Most of his family lives there. But here are my three descriptions of our trip and uh, not necessarily in any importance of order. But first of all, it was exhausting. And I say that not as a complaint, okay? Uh, not as a complaint. We, we hit the ground running, literally. Uh, uh, we traveled 19,000 miles by air and uh, 1,000 miles, uh, about 1,000 miles in, in, in vehicles, in a vehicle. Um, so uh, we spoke in church services. Uh, uh, spoke, we spoke 11 times in 10 days, and uh, uh, we're edifying believers, and we were evangelizing, doing evangelism, and, and sharing the gospel. Uh, we had a number of meetings with Anand's family and with his friends, uh, some of his friends from college uh, that uh, are uh, uh, steeped in Hinduism, and we were able to, to at least connect with them. We didn't share the gospel with a lot of them. We had contacts with people uh, in the airport and on the airplanes as we were going back and forth, uh, many opportunities to, to minister there. We saw church plants where they were building buildings that were under construction, and that we were go there and pray with them and for them and for their ministry. Uh, we were asked to pray for and with a number of different people uh, in the congregation uh, after the services that we had. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, I say that we were, uh, we went one morning we went out at 6 a.m. To, to a village where they were doing evangelism, street evangelism. So they had a little megaphone at you know, imagine going, people coming down your street at 6.30 in the morning, uh, sharing the gospel and other people walking along, handing out gospel tracts while, uh, while they're doing that. And uh, uh, meanwhile, the dogs and cats and chickens and goats and everything are running down the streets. And uh, we, we measure our, you know, time compared to our brothers and sisters in Christ who were there. Uh, these people work six days a week. Uh, that's their typical work week is six days a week. Uh, they get every other Saturday they get off. And then they spend the rest of the time doing evangelism. So there were about a dozen guys out there before work at 6 a.m. in the morning doing street evangelism uh, with, the, with the local evangelist. And then they would go to work and then they would be out there the, uh, at another village the next morning. They did this two days a week. So their regular sacrifice and their, um, and their joy in it uh, really showed us that convenience and comfort weren't really part of their, uh, their picture as far as uh, what it means to be a, a representative of the gospel of Christ. Secondly, it was encouraging. Um, God really, uh, I think, showed up and confirmed to us um, that he's a, a prayer-answering, compassionate, and loving and kind God. Um, uh, Chad, could you go to the map of uh, India? I kind of give people a little bit of a picture. Okay, so now you can't see this, I know, but uh, Chad, do you have the cursor? Can you put the cursor somewhere on there or not? Uh, okay, it doesn't matter. Uh, we were in southern India, okay? So right there, uh, that triangle right in there, you can maybe see, I don't know, I can see the cursor, yeah, circling around there. So we were south of Hyderabad, we were East of Hyderabad, Hyderabad is a city of about 13 million people, so roughly the size of Los Angeles or, or Chicago. Uh, Vijaywada, which is south and east near the Bay of Bengal, uh, that's a city I think somewhere about 8 or 10 million, and uh, we were in the small town of Carnul of 2 million, and in between it's people, okay? And so God answers prayer in mighty ways, and uh, it's just a joy to see in a, a completely different part of the world how the, the God of the universe is redeeming people to himself. Uh, I had the privilege of standing and talking to uh, two young gals in, in their early 20s, and both of them had recently come to Christ. I think in 2021, they had come to, to know Jesus. One gal was from a Hindu background, and, uh, and, and the other one was from an atheist family, and both of them said, we're secret Christians. 
they can't tell their parents uh, that they're, uh, they're believers for fear. And uh, they, they're living in this city. And another gal who had come to faith in Christ from a high caste Brahmin family and her husband, they're, uh, they're discipling them and mentoring them. And it's just a joy to see God working in, in marvelous ways. Um, I, I, I think that I was encouraged that we were able to share the word. And as Paul said to the Thessalonians, uh, our very lives as well. Uh, we were just able to pour our lives into them. We had conversations with a lot of people. Uh, thank you all for your prayers. My stomach issues were manageable. Uh, I'm not saying it was, uh, you know, no problems, but it was manageable. And so God was good. Uh, the people there were bent over backwards to accommodate this weak Westerner uh, for whom I would tell them, I love Indian food, it just doesn't love me. And uh, that I just can't, I just couldn't do it. We were blessed with uh, good health uh, throughout our entire trip. We didn't have any problems, uh, neither one of us. And, you know, both of us were praying and asking you to pray that way because Anan usually goes over there and is sick for the first week that he's there when he travels, but he was not sick, I was not sick, uh, and we were all over the place. Uh, we were in rural areas and, and cities and everywhere, and uh, so uh, God waited till I got home for me to get sick, so that was a, that was a good thing, uh, and uh, we were able to minister the way it was. So um, one story I have to tell you that uh, I wish Anna could tell you this story too, but uh, we left uh, and arrived in Chicago, um, on the 2nd of March, and we were making our connecting flight. We were supposed to fly from Dubai or from Chicago to Dubai with the United Arab Emirates, and then from Dubai into Hyderabad, uh, all connected together. In order to travel to India, you have to have a visa. And so we had applied for my visa. My visa had been approved, and we got to the counter, and you have to show your visa. And so I showed him my visa. I had it all printed out and everything. It's an electronic visa, but I printed it out, and uh, the man at the gate or, or the checkout counter, check-in counter took it and he, he looked at it and then he went over and he's talking to somebody and he came back and he says, I'm sorry, uh, you can't go. Your visa expires on March 3rd and you're not supposed to arrive, you're supposed to arrive in Hyderabad at 2.30 in the morning on March 4th. So two and a half hours, uh, we're off. And I just went... Now what? And you know, we just got done singing this, sand, this song. I'll, I'll fight my battle on my knees with my hands lifted high. And so they said, well, you can stay in Chicago and you can uh, reapply for your visa and then you could travel, but we cannot let you travel because if you arrive in Hyderabad, they're going to reject you and fine you and send you back. And so long story short, we were making phone calls and, and praying and asking people to pray and uh, on and called his friend Job and uh, I called my wife Marla and they both went over to, to Anand and Lois's house where we had applied for the visa and we re they were reapplying for the visa while we're trying to talk on the phone and, and make connections so that we, would, we were going to drop the flight from Dubai to Hyderabad and just fly to Dubai and wait in Dubai until my visa got approved and then we would get a flight over to Hyderabad. At least we'd be halfway around the world. Uh, and not, but we were slated to, to miss uh, uh, some of what we had planned on doing. When they were applying for the visa, the earliest date you could get approval for the visa was March 6th. We were supposed to arrive on March 4th. So the earliest date you could get approval was March 6th, and we said, well, that's fine. We're just going to have to stay in, in, in uh, Dubai for a couple of days, so go ahead and do it. Before we left Chicago, I received an email that my visa uh, application had been received. Okay, so they had an application received, and we were absolutely the last people on the flight from Chicago to Dubai. They were going to close the gate and, and not let us, let us in. And when I went through the security check, it was like my bag got set apart. They were going to inspect it. But nobody's there to inspect it on break. And I'm thinking, okay, here we have test after test after test. We got on the flight, we landed in Dubai 13 and a half hours later, we uh, got into the terminal and I uh, connected to their Wi-Fi and I received an email that my visa had been approved for March 3rd. 
Yeah. Now that was a miracle. Earliest date you could get approval, March 6th. They had to apply for March 6th approval. It was approved March 3rd. I said, Anand, we, we, we got approval, so let's go. And now the flight that we had canceled from Dubai to Hyderabad, we tried to get a flight. So we went, well, I don't know, Anand had it on his watch. Two miles we walked into Dubai airport. And so we went and went back to check in. We got our flight uh, got the tickets for our flight, then we had to do this automatic uh, check your luggage in thing. I'm very much a discouraged person when it comes to automated stuff, okay? <laughs> it never works. You end up having to get somebody to help you. We were not the last people on the flight, but we were almost the last people on that flight, but by God's grace, he got us through and uh, we, we arrived on time. So that's a miracle uh, that God got us through. And the, the last thing I want to say is, is I was uh, not just, it was not just exhausting and not a complaint, not only encouraging that we have a, a prayer answering God, but it was uh, very enlightening uh, as I was uh, alerted to uh, this, the, the India, okay? Four times the number of people in the United States. 1.42 billion people in India. One-third of the square miles, you know, one-third of the area of the United States. Uh, there is no such thing as personal space in India. Uh, you, you, it doesn't matter if you're outside or if you're inside, if you're on the road, uh, it, it, it's just, that's the way it is. Um, the, the, the prevalence of paganism is, is palpable. Uh, Pagan temples and worship spaces, uh, everywhere you go, you cannot escape it. Uh, the, the place we stayed in Carnool, uh, across the street, uh, the call to prayer went out beginning at 5.30 a.m. five times every day. Um, it was just uh, evident that there, and, and, and the, the lostness and the desperateness of the people uh, uh, tugs at your heart. Um, uh, and it was great. But the Indian people are very welcoming and very polite and very gracious and very hardworking. And the commitment of the believers there is, uh, is absolutely humbling. And uh, their sacrifice is inspiring. And the work that Anand and Lois and their family are doing in India is also uh, something that you need to ask them about because they'll never toot their own horn. Uh, Lois's father... Now, you correct me if I'm wrong, Lois. Was it 80,000 or 800,000 tracks? How many? 800,000 gospel tracks he had printed before he died. Because he spent his money on ministry uh, and lived very, very humbly in order to, to present, the, present the gospel to, to people. And so that uh, is a legacy, and they continue it to this day. And so for that... I am grateful. That's all that I'm going to share with you right now. Uh, I have many more things to, that I could share. If you want to know them personally, then you ask me and let me know if it's the 30-second or whatever. And, it, and you ask Anand as well. And if you want, just say, what's one thing that you would share? You know, that, that would be an easy thing if you don't want to hear a whole bunch. Just say, what's one, uh, one situation or one story that you would share with us? Uh, other than the miracle of the visa approval, okay? All right, that's, uh, that's where I'm going to leave that. Let's pray. Father, uh, you are a prayer-answering God, evident by your blessing in our lives, and I thank you for uh, the blessing of this congregation and their support and their commitment to stand behind Anand and I as we uh, were able to labor and serve you uh, in another part of the world where the gospel is desperately needed as it is everywhere. And I pray now that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law, that you would encourage us to, to understand your word and apply it to our lives. In, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. On two separate occasions, um, and I will never, never forget them, I had the, the horrible responsibility of sitting across from, uh, in each case, three young children. And I had to tell them that their father had left 
them and their mother. There's nothing more horrifying for uh, a child to hear than that news. There's nothing more devastating than a father failing his responsibilities. Only the departure of our Heavenly Father would be a worst-case scenario. But that's exactly where we find the people of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Dad's gone. Father left. The ark is no longer there. And his presence is absent from them. Twice in the last two verses of 1 Samuel chapter 4, we read these words. The glory has departed from Israel. That was a description of the people of Israel. God's gone. He's not there. 1 Samuel chapter 4 says, The glory has departed twice in chapter 4 verses 21 and 22. No person, no church will do well without the glory of God. It was even read up here this morning. What did Jesus say in John chapter 5 verse 15? I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Moses knew the same thing when he said in Exodus chapter 33, Lord, if you're not going with us, don't send us up into the promised land. You see, we need God, His powerful presence at work in us and for us, on behalf of us and through us. And sometimes God removes His glory. And sometimes He is absent because He wants us to realize how much we need Him. And I think that's what He was doing in Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and chapter 6. Though God's glory... And his presence, and when I say glory, when we say the ark, we mean him, his presence, because that's where the presence of God was dwelling. His presence had departed from Israel. We discover in chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse 1, that his presence was not diminished. And that his presence was actually demonstrated and elevated so that the people would see their need for him. Now, I have modified uh, the outline a little bit uh, from what you have printed in your bulletin and what you'll see on the screen because I'm constantly asking and directing, okay? So just allow me a little privilege. So what I want to say is that in 1 Samuel, this, this statement here is modified a little bit from what you see. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through chapter 7, 1, we discover four ways in which God's glory is revealed that inspire I think, repentance, unwavering faith, wholehearted devotion, and reverent communion. Now, that's different than what you see there, but that's what I'm, uh, I think is a better a summary of what's going on. Now, the four statements that I'm going to make are basically a modified version of what Ralph Dale, uh, Dale Ralph Davis has, has put together in his commentary. But uh, I'm going to expand them out and fill them out. First of all, we see the superiority of our God. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. If you have your Bibles, if you have your device, you can turn there if you haven't already. I'll read the first five verses. Now the Philistines took the ark of of God and brought it to Ebenezer, to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who entered Dagon's house... Uh, tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Dagon was the chief Philistine god. Now, they had other gods, but he was the chief Philistine god. And the Philistines recognized not just Dagon, but they also recognized Yahweh, that Yahweh was a strong god. And he was a god to be feared. This is chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He is a god to be feared. But they defeated him. 
And in ancient Near Eastern culture, if your country beat the other country, then your God was power, more powerful than their God. And so they took the Ark of the Covenant, which was the representation, the personification of God himself, and the Ark of the Covenant mentioned 12 times in chapter 5 alone. Many times in chapter 4 and also in chapter 7 or 6. But 12 times in chapter 5 alone. And they put God, the Ark, next to Dagon, their god, in the temple of Dagon. And they did this as a, as a representation of their acknowledgement that their god was superior to the god of the Israelites. Hinduism has thousands of gods, okay? There are thousands of gods in Hinduism. A young gal I was visiting with in the Dubai airport as we were headed back, uh, she was headed to Chicago to go to school and uh, uh, she was from a Hindu background, and she asked me what I did. <laughs> I said, well, I'm a teacher. <laughs> and she said, and later she goes, what do you teach? And I said, uh, I teach religion. And uh, she said, I said, oh, yeah. I said, okay. I said, so you're Hinduism. I said, what does Hinduism teach about Jesus? And so she told me, and then I said, well, you know, I, I, I don't remember exactly all the conversation, but long story short was, in, in Hinduism, Jesus is just another god, and, and if, you like, if you want to pick Jesus as the main god and work towards him, that's cool, but, uh, uh, you know, it's up to you. And uh, basically, uh, Christianity doesn't teach that, you know. Christianity teaches that there is one god, and Jesus is the only way to him, and Jesus is also god. Well, the Philistines were not as pantheistic, didn't have as many gods as the Hindus, but they had many. And here we have Yahweh, represented by the Ark of the Covenant, placed next to Dagon, and you see what happens. We see that the, the, the superiority of God is evident in, first of all, how there are two proofs in which he's superior. First, God shows Dagon to be insignificant. The delusion that the, that the Philistines had conquered God, the God of Israel, is comically, I think, and convincingly uh, debunked. He's insignificant because what happens? The next morning we wake up and Dagon is bowing down, face down, before the Ark of the, uh, of the Covenant. Now, okay, so maybe there was an earthquake. Uh, maybe there's a, a strong wind that blew through the temple and knocked him down, you know. But to prove that, uh, that this was, that this picture of submission wasn't accidental, but that it was providential, God took the next step uh, to establish himself as the only true living and supreme God. Uh, God shows not only Dagon to be insignificant, but he shows Dagon to be impotent. Because the next morning they wake up, and guess what? Dagon's face down again, but his head's cut off, and his hands are cut off. And you think, what's that about? Well, in, the, in, in that culture, if you conquered people, you decapitated them to prove your supremacy. So here is the decapitated Dagon in front of bowing down before the God of the universe. Sounds a little bit like God's supremacy on Mount Carmel, when Elijah called down fire from heaven. And here's what Elijah's comment was, which I think is just as appropriate here. He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. Follow him. So they thought they had it one-upped on, on, on Yahweh, but no. Yahweh has unrivaled supremacy, superiority. He's the only true God. He proves it here. He's the only one worthy of worship. Isaiah chapter 45, 5, verse 7, Besides me, there is no God. That's the message that we have to carry to the world. There is one God. Yeah, He exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But there is one God. And He is superior to any other God. And He alone deserves our unwavering allegiance. I wonder if we're not like the Philistines sometimes. We're worshiping our false gods, worshiping our idols, our idols of financial security. Oh, uh, I have to look the best. Uh, my reputation, I have to keep it intact. And I worship my possessions. Or maybe we're like the Israelites, and we worship our work, and we work at our play, and we play at our worship. 
Our God is supreme. And He deserves our undeserved or unwavering devotion and sincerity. And secondly, we see the severity of our God, beginning with chapter 5, verse 6. And I'm just going to read down through verse 12, but it continues on through chapter 6, verse 9. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites. Now notice, as we read through the text, the hand of the Lord was heavy. The hand of the Lord was severe. The hand of the Lord was heavy. And he said, he ravaged them, and he smote them with tumors in both Ashdod and its territories. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us. And notice the next phrase, and on our God, Dagon. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath, which was another Philistine city, passing around, you know, hot potato ark. And they brought the ark of God of Israel around. And it came about that after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with very great confusion. And he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that the tumors broke out on them. They, so they sent the ark of the God to Akron, another place. This is insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And it happened that the ark of the God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, oh, they brought the ark of God of Israel around to, kill, to us to kill us and our people. And they sent, therefore, and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send the ar- away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Our God is a severe God. And His glory is seen practically in His severity in dealing with those who persistently reject Him. Two insights into His severity. First of all, His severity is applied in verses 6-12. through 12. Again, that's a change from your, your outline there. The ESV says in chapter 5, verse 6, that he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. You know, he ravaged and smote them, is the NASB. He, he terrified and afflicted. The confirmation that God's hand was severe on them, that it was God's hand, is in the testimony of the author of the scripture who says that God's hand was heavy on them, but also confirmed by the Ashdodites' statement themselves. Because we just read in verse 7 that they said at the end of verse 7, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon, our God. What was their remedy for God's severity? It wasn't submission. Oh no, send him away. (laughs) We don't want to do with him. Send the ark of God to Gath. And then we read what happened to them where both the men, young and old, suffered the same plight, death, disease, and difficulty. The men of Gath sent the ark to Ekron, another Philistine city. But the people immediately cried out, oh, don't send the ark here to kill us and our people. See, God's hand was heavy and severe on people who thought that they were better than God. They were arrogant and self-sufficient, and they didn't need God, and they rejected God, and they held up Dagon. In their idolatry, God's hand was severe against them in the form of death, disease, and interestingly enough, dreaded mice. Some people think that there was some sort of a plague that was spread by the the rodents. Possible, I don't know. But uh, make no mistake, this is my take from it, make no mistake, God will deal severely with rebellion. He is a severe God. We have a a world in which we're playing out God as, oh, God is love, God is love, and that's all God is. Oh, God is love. But He is holy and righteous, and He was severe against those who reject Him. Some of you are familiar with the the history, the story of uh, WNBA player um, uh, Brittany Griner. Uh, She went to, to, to Russia, had a little bit of dope in her, in her, her suitcase, uh, cannabis oil. Ah, she got busted at the airport 
took her in. They're going to sentence her to nine and a half years in Russian prison. Because you know what? The Russians take seriously a violation of their laws when it comes to drugs. Well, our God takes seriously the violation of His law and rebellion against Him. And He doesn't mess around. Faced with the same severe judgment, each Philistine city responded similarly. What did they do? They sought relief, not repentance. They weren't going to change. They were just going to pass it on to the next group, hoping for something different. They sent the ark of God away, eventually saying, well, let's just send it to its own place. And the Philistines discovered what Israel had found out previously in chapter 4. We serve God. He doesn't serve us. He's God and we're not. The second way the severity is affected, his severity or, uh, highlighted, they, they, they severe, the severity is, is, is averted. They try to avert it. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, which I'm going to summarize, and what I would encourage you, you know, as we go through the, the, the book of Samuel, if you if just read the next section before you come to church, because we don't have time to read through all of it, but in chapter 6, verse 1 through 9, it begins this way. Now the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines seven months. They were pretty, uh, pretty bullheaded. I mean, seven months of severe hand of God <laughs> until they finally decided, okay, let, let's, let's get rid of this thing. Seven months the hand of the Lord was heavy against them until they finally called for their priests and their diviners to instruct them on how to get rid of the ark, okay, of the Lord and send it to its proper place. Now, they give a series of instructions. I'm not going to read down through all the instructions, but as we look through it, the instructions, I think, reveal an intellectual but not an internal understanding of many of the characteristics of our God. They had a grasp of who God was, at least on an intellectual basis. And, and I'm just going to highlight a, a few of those. First of all, they understood that God's presence and power was with the ark. This is verses 2 and 3. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. And they said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but you shall surely return to him a guilt offering. They understood that God was with the ark. They understood that God is holy and righteous. You shall send with him a guilt offering. What is that about? Well, to atone for your sin. You'd you'd messed up, so you need to pay for that and and, and get it right with, with God. God is this holy and righteous God. He's also compassionate and forgiving. Because then you'll, then you'll be healed. Do you hear? They understood in their head that this is a powerful, awesome God. And that He can judge. And He can punish. But He can also forgive. And He's gracious. So they put the five tumors. Now can you imagine that? Okay, we're, let's, pick, let's take a picture, snapshot of our, our tumor and we'll make a a golden image of it. It's kind of gross, you know. And we'll make some golden mice and we'll stick them in a box and set it next to the ark and we'll send it away. But this was a picture of the removal, symbolically a removal of what was causing their problems away from them, symbolically. Then they see that God is worthy of, of glory. And the, I love the, the Hebrew word kabod is, is glory. It means heavy. Weighty. God is weighty. He's powerful and he is to be honored. Okay? He is he's, he's there. If you read verse 5, it says, you, So you shall make the likeness of your tumors and the likeness of your mice that ravage the land, and you shall give glory, glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you and your gods and your land. Did you hear that? From you, your gods, and your land. It was a Threefold curse. And they felt the full weight of it, a triple threat. And they had experienced it personally, but they had never been changed internally. 
They were face to face with the living God. And he was working powerfully, showing his strength and his might. And they were intellectually aware, but not spiritually changed. They wanted only to avoid the same catastrophe that they had heard about and read about that happened to the Egyptians in the Exodus. Oh, we can't be like those people. Remember, they were hard-hearted and stupid, and they waited until everybody was dead before they sent the Egyptians away. We're going to get rid of this God now. They only wanted to avoid the pain. The plan was send the ark on a cart pulled by some some, some milk cows, okay, never before yoked. And they had to, the cows would have to choose the, the path to Beth Shemesh. And, uh, and that would confirm, according to verse 9, that it is he who has done this great harm. See, they still were holding out that perhaps it was a, just a coincidence. Perhaps it was just bad luck that all this had happened. And so we were only going to confirm it if, if, if all of these conditions were met. They assumed their plight was coincidence if these didn't happen. But in light of the challenges, we see the third truth, the sovereignty of our God in verses 10 through 12. See, the compelling confirmation that God's hand was behind their calamity is found in the difficulty overcome in proving it. How do I know God answers prayer? Because I got a visa approved for March 3rd, when online the application would only allow for one on March 6th. They strapped two milk cows, put them in a yoke, and they'd never been yoked before. Now, people, I know that most of you don't have any much agri agricultural background, but this is insane. It's like putting a saddle on a horse that had never been saddled before. It just is, they're, they're going to go berserk. And these are milk cows, so they're heavy with milk, and they take their calves and they lock them into a barn. And folks, that doesn't happen. Milk cows don't run away from their calves because they're hurting and they want to get relief. And they want to go back to the calves and let the calves get their milk. And the calves are bawling in the barn. And what do we see? They walk and then they have to choose which path they're going to go on. And you read the text, and here's what they do. The, the, the cows, they didn't return to the calves, but they went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh. Lowing, that means kind of mooing contentedly. And the text says they turned neither to the right nor to the left, verse 12. The lords of the Philistines followed them all the way to the border of Beth Shemesh. So every condition that they had placed on proving that this was God had been met. And so the lords followed them and then proving that God is, the God of Israel was sovereignly and unquestionably responsible for the tumors and the tragedy that they had experienced. And the people of Beth received the, the, the ark, it says in, in verse 9, uh, despite and they rejoiced to see it. But despite the confirmation, verse 9, look, look at verse 9, it says, And watch, if it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beshemesh, then he has done, that is God, has done this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it has not, his hand has not struck us. It happened to us by chance. Despite the fact that they had confirmation that it was he who had caused this great evil, They did not give God glory. They said we should give Him glory, but they really didn't give God glory. They came face to face with a superior and sovereign God so that their minds were informed that He, in fact, had, 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 had accomplished all of this and had done all this, and yet their hearts were not transformed and neither were their lives. No change. No, they went back to Ekron. Back to their idol. They returned to Ekron, satisfied with temporary relief, refusing to turn from their idolatry. 
refusing to trust in the true and living God. And as I read this text, I think sadly that many people in our world today respond exactly the same. Face to face with the power and the unquestioned reality of who God is and their need to repent and turn, and yet we go back to our idolatry and we reject God himself. His sovereignty and his superiority would push him away. I think I may have shared this before, I don't know, but I did, I did a funeral one time for a, a young man who was, uh, it was a, he died because he was drinking and driving. And I did the funeral and uh, shared the gospel, told people, you know, uh, this is going to happen, we're all going to die, it's a matter of whether we're prepared to die, shared the gospel, talked to them about their frailty, and within minutes after the, 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 the people had left uh, their meal, they were drinking their sorrows away. They had returned like swine to the wallow. They had returned to the very thing that had caused their brother, their cousin, their uncle's death. It's a sad tragedy. But it's a reality that people refuse. God, I'm pleading with you this morning. Don't be one of those people. If you have never put your faith and your trust in Christ, don't run back to the pig wallow. It's an empty cistern, a broken cistern that holds no water. It's not where you need to go. No. You want to turn from it. And trust, don't make that mistake. God revealed himself clearly. He reveals himself clearly in the Bible. He reveals himself clearly among his people. He reveals himself completely in the person of Jesus Christ. He reveals himself in creation. So don't reject his revelation, but repent of your sin and turn and trust in Christ for salvation. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For the heart we believe resulting in righteousness. With the mouth we confess resulting in salvation. Just because you're in church, you can be like the Philistines. You can be like the Israelites. We see the sanctity of our God, finally. The three demonstrations of His holiness. His holiness punishes disobedience. Interestingly enough, in verses 19 through 21, the people of Beshemesh are to be commended because they received the, the, the ark with celebration, right? They, they, they sacrificed, but they're to be condemned for their contempt for the ark. Three times in verses 19 through 21, we read that he struck them down. He struck them down. He struck them down. Why? Because they looked at the ark. With irreverence, they, they, in violation of Numbers chapter 4, verse 20, they weren't supposed to look at the ark. It's, the, it's God's presence. And he struck them down. Now, there's some, uh, in verses 19 and 20, it's uh, interesting. In verse 19, he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark or looked at the ark. And he struck down all the people. The New American Standard says 50,070. The ESV says 70. And you go, wow, that's a big difference. Yeah, it is. But, you know, numbers uh, doesn't really matter. The point's still the same. Some of them messed up, and they got struck down because of it, okay? That's, I'd like to say, it doesn't really matter. The people of Beth Shemesh were right on their ritual. They were wrong on their reverence for God, for a holy God. Their hands performed the duty, but their hearts lacked any devotion. And that's where... I look at us and I say, and myself, and I say, are we simply engaged in religious ritual? Or are we truly righteous and reverent in our adoration and our service for the King? As we read our Bibles, as we pray, 
as we come to church, as we serve the Lord, as we give our money, as we do these things, are we just going through the motions? Or are we worshiping and serving a holy, righteous, sovereign, superior, sanctified, holy God in awe and reverence? Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do I live my life for the one who loved me and gave himself for me? Paul said, my, my proud confidence is this. The testimony of my conscience, the holiness and godly sincerity and not with fleshly wisdom, we have conducted ourselves among you, among the world and especially towards you. With holiness and godly sincerity, that's what I see lacking in the Israelites and absent from the Philistines. Holiness and godly sincerity. I was challenged in India by our brothers and sisters in Christ who serve out of the sincerity and devotion of Christ. They're not merely going through the motions. Not some of them are, you know, some of them are. They're, 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 they're people, just like us. But a lot of them aren't. They're sacrificing greatly and serving God sincerely. I visited with a young man. Well, he's young to me because I'm old. But he, he's a middle-aged guy. And uh, he was an Air Force captain in the Indian Air Force. He had resigned his commission to become an evangelist. Which what we would call a pastor. I mean, his standard of living was going from here to here. Because there, in, in, the, in the Brethren Fellowship, or Brethren Assemblies, you, you get what you get. You show up and they give you, and what you get is what you get. Talk about a step of faith. Talk about trusting Christ and, and laying it on the line. And I'm humbled by that. See, neither the pagan Philistines nor the pretend followers of God were exempt from the judgment of a holy God who deserves to be treated as holy. Secondly, we see that His, holy, His holiness is proclaimed in verse 20. It says, And the men of Beshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. They understood it. That he's a holy God. Tragically, they understood that he was holy. They knew that he was set apart. But then they kept their distance from him. Which leads to the third step. His holiness prompts distance for the unrepentant. 20 and 21, we see that they responded just like the Philistines did. Rather than allowing His holiness to move them to repentance, they, like the Philistines, removed God from their presence. See, it's not God is holy, so we have to escape God. It's God is holy, so let's lean into God and, and enable Him to help us experience His holiness and to be in His presence with fear and trembling. So we remember the story in Mark chapter 5 about the Gerasene demoniac from whom legions of demons were cast, right? And the people of the city came out to see Jesus after the, the 2,000 pigs had dove into the, the lake. And amazingly, these people saw the man seated, clothed, and in his right mind. And their response was, get that Jesus guy out of here. Instead of, Oh, Lord, we need you. It was, get him out of here. Same thing, I think, in the Old Testament here. Get him out of here. We can't stand in the presence of this holy and righteous God. The answer is not distance, folks. The answer is repentance. And faith, whereby 
We can, we're made righteous. If you're not a child of God, it's repentance and faith that leads to salvation. If you are a child of God, it's, oh Lord, I'm sorry I've been putting you off at a distance and I want to draw you back that we should live with this holy and righteous God in reverence, in fear, and trembling. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. He's no longer our enemy, but that doesn't mean we should te- treat him trivially. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. So we talked about it in Ephesians, our identity is as his children. He doesn't reject his children, but his children don't, don't treat their father with contempt. No, we, we, we evidence our, our ritualistic observance and our lack of reverence for God when we use profanity casually, when we participate in unholy activities that we know are not pleasing to him. And the focus of the evangelical church today so many times is love wins, that God is only love, and he's some chummy buddy that we can carry around with us, and that he cares about me and me only. Well, yeah, he cares about us. He is love, but he is holy and righteous. And when we invite the world into the church and make the world, the church like the world, we, dis, we, we disgust God and we turn him off. We lose sight of what uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in Lion, Witch, and a Wardrobe when, Lewis, when, uh, when Mrs. Beaver told Lucy, Lucy says, is, is Aslan safe? Aslan representing God. He says, no, Aslan is not safe. But Aslan is good. And that's the God we worship. He's not safe. (laughs) Oh no. But he is very, very good. He's quite good. Sadly, the men of Beshemesh conclude that they and the ark are better separate. And so my my plea is, if you're here and you know Jesus, you don't know Jesus, then recognize the superiority of God. Recognize the severity of God and the sanctity of God and repent of your sins and turn from your sins and trust in Christ who is also gracious and loving and compassionate and ready to forgive. And you become his child. And yes, you will be able to be in your father's house and you will be there with trembling, but you will be there safe. Don't delay. Don't reject God. Don't put him away. That's your condemnation. And if you know Christ as your Savior, then here's my thing. God's superiority and His sovereignty should instill confidence that He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He's on our side. He alone is God, and He is worthy of our worship. His severity should move us to examine our words and our thoughts and our actions so that our lives begin to reflect the holiness of the God that we profess to follow. And we can enjoy communion with Him. His supremacy inspires repentance and unwavering faith and wholehearted devotion and reverent communion. And Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the ultimate guilt offering that enables us to enjoy this fellowship. And we remember it when we take the bread and we drink the juice. We understand that he did it for us so that we could be brought near to the, the, the blood of, brought near to Christ who is holy and righteous in God. And so if you're here and you know Jesus, then take a moment to search your heart and get right with God because He's holy and righteous. And then you come and you take these elements to celebrate what He's done for you so you can become His child. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your goodness and Your grace. I thank You for Your love for us. I thank You that You are a superior God. You alone are God. I thank You that You are a sovereign God. I thank You, dear Father, that you are a severe God whose whose anger is is turned away only by the, the person and the work of Jesus. And I thank you that you're a holy God. And I pray that we would learn to worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would be holy as you are holy. In Jesus' name we pray.